A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. It's been a weird week, hasn't it? Still feels a bit like a kind of post-Christmas New Year hangover where you're not quite sure what day it is. I think Monday Night Football has a, an impact on that as well. I noticed that our FA Cup fourth round tie with Bournemouth has also been chosen for a Monday night broadcast by BT Sport. So, you know, fuck you, BT Sport. Fuck you right in your fucking fuck place. I'm tired of Monday night football. I hate Monday night kickoffs. And we seem, maybe it's just me, but we seem to have had far more of those than uh, than is normal. Certainly more than is acceptable to me anyway, and that should be the baseline for this thing. Somebody did make a point to me very recently when I said, uh, you know, Monday Night Football broadcasters being monsters and all that kind of stuff that, you know, we do benefit as a football club from the broadcasters giving us lots of money, which we can then spend on players like Nicolas Pepe and, and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. But at the same time, Fuck them. Now, I know Bournemouth away isn't necessarily the longest trip that our away fans could have on a Monday night, but it's still a reasonable journey to get down, get back, got to get to work the next morning and all the rest. And it's, you know, maybe fine for us who are going to be sitting at home watching it on TV. But while that's happening, we'll have had a weekend of of pundits and TV talkers and radio mouths and all these people talking about how the magic of the cup, it's not the same as it used to be. The FA Cup used to be such a wondrous thing. And now look, somehow the magic of this competition has been diminished. I mean, I wonder, could it be anything to do with playing the games on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, just so you fuckers can put it on the TV? I know we all want to see the games. We're we're the thirst that they're quenching. Is this our fault? I'm not sure it is. It's not our fault. We all want to see our football team. That's the nature of football fans. That's something that can always be exploited. But those that run the game and manage the competitions, do they not have some responsibility for for maintaining the magic of the cup? Like the magic of sitting down with your little fella. Maybe it's the first time he's watched a game on, on TV, sat down to watch his team with his dad. Come on there, son. Me and you will sit down in front of the TV and we'll, we'll watch the match. And we'll forge a bond that will live for as long as we're together on this earth because that's what happens. Fathers, sons, football, football club support. It runs through our very veins. Let me get the remote control out there. Well, it doesn't, doesn't, appear, to be, doesn't appear to be on the TV. Mm, how do I watch this game? Oh, that's right. I've got to go to a website of a betting company and place a bet or deposit some money in an account so I can live stream an FA Cup game via my favorite betting company. This, this, son, is what football is all about. Don't you ever forget this. This is a special day in, in your life. The magic of the cup, you fucking fuckers. Anyway, 
I appear to have um, gone off on a little bit of a tangent there. We've got a very busy show for you today because we are playing Crystal Palace tomorrow and we will be getting a Crystal Palace view of their season, of the game and uh, Wilfred Zaha, of course, who was very close, well, not close to joining Arsenal. He was a player that Arsenal were interested in during the summer and he very much wanted to join Arsenal. So we're going to talk to Dan from HLTCO about that a little bit later on. We'll also be finding out why signing another Cesc Fabregas. Imagine if we could find another Cesc Fabregas knocking around Barcelona or anywhere else for that matter. Why that is no longer going to be a possibility for Arsenal or any other English club. That's coming a bit later on as well. But first, to kick us off today, Mikel Arteta has impressed most of us, I think, with the impact that he has had as uh, the Arsenal manager. In a, a few short games, he appears to have done things which have made a group of players who, if they had all the medical textbooks in the world, still could not tell the difference between their arses and their elbows and fashion them into something that looks like a football team. How has he done it? What are the things that he has done and what might he do from a tactical point of view? Who better to talk about that than Michael Cox, who many of you will know as Zonal Marking. Hi, Michael. Hi, Andrew. Can I ask you uh, what might seem like a very basic question, but is something like a team's structure and its organization, would that be considered a tactical element to what a coach is doing because you know it sounds like one of the basics but in order to implement the uh, the kind of football that he wants to play can you look at the way that he he basically positions his team on the pitch as a tactical uh, element to what Arteta is doing yeah definitely I, I always consider tactics quite a broad thing I think in in punditry and journalism is often considered you know what a manager specifically does on the day to to you know expose weaknesses of of the opposition or defend against them but yeah for me it's it's quite a basic thing it's about your understanding of um, of phases of play and where you're positioned and certainly the structure of the team and I think it's particularly relevant for Arsenal when you know for 18 months a key criticism of of Emery's reign was really he didn't have a a default style he didn't have a default system so just to see you know the players aligned in a pretty similar way in four consecutive games um i think is a significant step forward and yes certainly for me uh, a tactical improvement can you sort of in the in the wake of Emery's departure posit a theory as to why it is that You know, somebody who was considered or widely um, considered a a tactician in the sense that, um, you know, he looked at what the opposition were doing and he he tailored his team around that, never quite put in place any, any foundations, any structures to, to his team. I mean, can you... Can you be considered a good tactician if your tactics are, are changing from one week to the next? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And to be honest, I think it's, it's pretty perplexing, really, how badly Emery did. I mean, we knew that it was never convincing from the first half of the, the first season. He kind of stumbled along picking up victories, obviously went flat towards the end of last year. And then the first half of this season, it really was quite disastrous. But I think actually the four games that Arteta has been in charge, particularly that one against Manchester United, really have put into context quite how, you know, lacking in a plan Emery was and... I guess the only real explanation is, um, or, or the only partial explanation is that he's he's so intent on, you know, adapting things from week to week to 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 guard against the opposition strengths that really there was no there was no plan A, which I know is not an original argument, but I do mm. think it is largely true. But I mean, it, you know, looking back with uh, with a few weeks, it's it's really baffling how badly Emery did. I mean, when there was the initial choice, I must say I was very much pro Arteta. I was excited by the concept of someone with new ideas coming in, but I, I actually thought Emery was the safe choice. If you like, I, I didn't yeah. think that there would be this kind of implosion and Arsenal would find themselves mid table. So yeah, it's, I, I can, I can barely begin to explain how badly it went towards the end. And, you know, with, with respect to Arteta, who I do think is a, is a talented, uh, a very talented coach, and I'm very excited to see him at Arsenal. It, it hasn't taken too much for you know a staggering level of improvement, really. Mm. I mean, I was going to ask you: is is the fact that it was so bad 
under Emery making it a little bit easier for Arteta in the sense that he's talked about, you know, a, a clean slate and giving every player a chance and what have you. But he's kind of come into um, a squad and a club which is, um, it needs to go in a different direction. So he can just basically abandon whatever, whatever was there and put in place his own ideas. He's not trying to shift them from one ideology to another. There is, there was no sort of overriding ideology or philosophy to to Emery's football. So you know, people are saying it's the players. You know, they're uncoachable. You can't do anything with these players. Arteta has shown that that you actually can. Uh, and you know, we have to caveat that as we we do in in re- in the opening weeks of his um, uh, reign as manager by saying it is very early, and you know, a lot can happen. But but in some ways, the fact that he himself can just wipe clean whatever was there and 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 start fresh. I think is making it maybe a little bit easier for him and easier for the players to get on board with. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that there is, there's always a danger of reading too much into the first few games. And, and we have seen a kind of new manager bounce at, uh, at other clubs, but I really think that there's been two completely separate improvements. One is the tactical improvement, which, you know, we have seen quite clearly a new system, a real uh, defined methodical type of build-up play and constantly getting players in, in good positions on the overlap in particular. Um, but we also have seen the kind of, I guess, traditional element of a new manager bounce, which is a freshness and enthusiasm about the players. And, you know, management is a, a very difficult job these days. There's so many areas where you have to excel in. Um, and I think Arteta already has shown that he, you know, he has the attention of the players. He's he's clearly got the likes of Aubameyang and Ozil, whose future was uns certain a month ago to buy into his methods but yeah there's also a structure and there's a clear plan and it's broadly speaking I would say um, you know you can tell that he has been Guardiola's assistant for three and a half years and obviously the main question was whether he had what it takes in in terms of um, you know in terms of personality to get the attention and the the faith of the players but I don't think that's been an issue and certainly tactically as well he seems very clued up and and with very uh, specific uh, ideas for what he wants to do with this side. Yeah, I mean, uh, you wrote a very good piece in The Athletic uh, about what he's done with the team. Um, I'm sure many people subscribe, but for those who don't, I mean, could you describe what it is that he is doing or what way he is setting his team up in in fairly simple layman's terms uh, to sort of outline the tactical tactical side of his his work so far? Yeah, sure. I mean... I guess one of the key parts of of coaching at the top level these days is managers essentially want their sides to form a front five in possession, to cover both the flanks, to have someone in the centre and to have someone in in the channels or the half spaces as they're generally called. And uh, the interesting thing is how managers manage to do that from a a starting system that obviously doesn't feature a front five. So I think Arteta's done it quite cleverly. He's played obviously Lacazette as the main striker, Nelson or Pepe as a permanent right winger. And then he's got Ozil as the number 10 who's drifting into an inside right position. Aubameyang who's starting on the left flank but has license to come in, uh, into an inside left position. And that's because of the overlapping of, of either Saka or Kolasinac on the overlap, which in fairness was something we saw in terms of overlapping under Emery. But I think there's more of a structure now. And, and when you look behind that, it means that um, you've got another bit of... I'd say clever play where you've got Maitland-Niles usually is, is tucking inside from right back to almost become an extra central midfielder. Xhaka, I think, looks comfortable the way he's playing, drifting out to the left. So it's almost 2-3-5 in possession. And not only does that allow you to stretch the opposition and, and get uh, players free in, in wide positions, it also means you've got a decent structure uh, behind you, you know, with lots of players in the centre of the pitch uh, in a position to guard against counterattacks. So I would say that's the main thing that we've seen from uh, Arteta so far there's been other improvements I think particularly um, the pressing has been very good not just with the energy of Lacazette and Aubameyang which I think people have have noticed but also there's been an intelligence about the way that they've done that they've been forcing the opposition into into you know pressing traps and I think the Manchester United game was notable for how often United's defenders uh, Lindelof and Maguire who are usually quite composed in possession how often they just hoof the ball out you know, either downfield or, or for a throw-in was very obvious. And then finally, I think the main thing uh, in terms of the possession is how often Torreira is getting on the ball and feeding it through to Ozil. And, you know, it sounds like a basic thing, but obviously Emery, for whatever reason, didn't fancy Torreira as a holding midfielder and, and Ozil certainly not 
as a number 10 most of the time, sometimes not in the size, sometimes not in the squad. So just the basics of getting your two best playmakers combining, breaking the lines through the center of the pitch obviously opens up so many, you know, options for for passing routes into attack. So it's it's just been so impressive in terms of the structure of the team and, and getting the good players in possession, which is a pretty major part of uh, attacking football, I'd say. Yeah, the possession thing is really interesting to me because, you know, throughout the Emery era, I, I never really felt like Arsenal were able to control games the way that they used to in, you know, I, I know things are a bit ropey towards the end of the Wenger era, but, you know, uh, just simply having more of the ball, um being unpressured at times. Uh, to me, it looks like Arteta is really focusing on possession, on keeping the ball and what we can do with it. And we know, obviously, that's a it can be a defensive tactic as much as it can be an attacking one because the opposition can't hurt you when you've got the ball. But you looked at the first half against Chelsea, the first half against Manchester United, Arsenal in possession looked in command of those games and they haven't done that for, for quite a while. But also... Um, even when they found it maybe physically more uh, difficult in the in the second periods, the organisation, the structure of the team um, allowed them to deal with the opposition in a more comfortable way than we have seen. So you think about the the second half against Watford this season when when uh, <laughs> Watford just ran Arsenal ragged, and there seemed to be no way of dealing with that. But even when United and Chelsea had more of the ball in the second halves uh, of those games. Arsenal looked a hell of a lot more comfortable in and out of possession. I think it's it's uh, that for me is a, a real step forward. Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's for me there's been probably two areas where I wouldn't say they're concerning or say that you know as a criticism because it's four games in and a little game on the on the tra- on the so a little time on the training ground. But I think that the the two areas I'd like to see an improvement are, are one, the the kind of drop off in the second half, which is probably natural at this time of the year. And the second thing is, I actually don't think the scorelines have reflected Arsenal's dominance. I mean, the Chelsea game mm. really should have been put to bed. Even the Manchester United game, I think Arsenal could have scored more. And I think actually that probably will just come from uh, improvement from individuals. I think Aubameyang and Lacazette and Ozil have been getting the ball in good positions and not necessarily you know, doing what they usually do. Maybe the part of that is the tiredness as well. Um, not just at this time of the year, but because of the regime and the, the new pressing. But that should, you know, I think that it's, it's easy to see both those areas improving in terms of fitness, you know, over the next couple of months when the, the schedule isn't quite so packed. And in terms of the finishing, once the uh, individuals just return to their, their top form. So, yeah, there's there's certainly elements to improve. And I think Arteta will probably appreciate getting you know, a whole week on the training ground, um, albeit it's been a Monday night game, it's not quite yeah. a full week, but, you know, ahead of Palace, he'll get more time than he's got so far to work on a specific game plan. When you look at the the Arsenal squad right now and you look at the uh, the work that Mikel Arteta has done at Manchester City, are there individual players there who you feel like uh, he's going to be able to get a lot more out of? Yeah, I mean, the obvious one is Torreira. I mean, obviously Guardiola's system at City really was has always been based around midfield possession and both Guardiola and Arteta himself really were playing in that deep-lying playmaker role that I think Barcelona have, have fetishised more than anyone else over mm. the years. So Arteta knows all about how to play in that position. Obviously did did so very well for Arsenal, particularly towards the end of his time when I think he dropped a bit deeper after Song left. So, yeah, I mean, just the way Torreira has been receiving the ball, I think, has been such a, a positive. He's been getting the ball right in front of the defenders. You know, he's comfortable on the turn, on the half turn, getting away from pressure. I think Arsenal will be much more adept than they have been in previous uh, months. I think that Watford game is probably the best example of, you know, a game where they were trying to play out from the back and just look completely nervous about how to do so. So I think I think Torreira's improvement really has been the positive because there were, you know, there were suspicions as well that he if if Emery didn't fancy him in that position or didn't fancy him at all, you know, maybe he, he didn't have such a, a big future at Arsenal. But now with Arteta in, you think he's probably the player that Arsenal can build around for the next few years. So I think that's a massive development for yeah. Arsenal. How highly do you rate him as a as a footballer, you know, in that position? I know when he arrived, um, you know, I was very enthused in the sense that, you know, he brought a lot of qualities to midfield that I thought Arsenal had been missing. And it, it always seems strange to me that over the, you know, the 
Emery got maybe a little bit confused by him or just didn't fancy him or didn't like his size or whatever. But but in terms of what he can bring to that role, because, you know, you think about Fernandinho at Manchester City, who who is that guy in that club, you know, a physically much more imposing player. But uh, as N'Golo Kante has shown, you don't necessarily have to be a huge man to be able to, to do that job well. So, I mean... Um, is he somebody you think can can really flourish in the Premier League? Yeah, I, I think he's brilliant. You know, I'd almost want to ignore um, what I've seen of him in the 18 months so far, which is not a criticism of him. But like you say, Emery clearly just didn't take to him, certainly not in that position. But whenever I've seen him, you know, beforehand for his in Serie A or, or for Uruguay, I just think he's got really everything you'd want from a player in that position. Like you say, maybe lacking in physical stature, but I don't think it's too difficult to pair him with someone who brings that. I mean, I think in basic terms, Xhaka does have that. He's obviously a very frustrating player, but I think in, in theory it works quite well as a partnership. And yeah, I think there has been more of a shift towards players um, in his mould, you know, in terms of size and stature when you look at Kante, but also in terms of his his forward thinking ability on the ball. Um, so yeah, I, I think he's the kind of player that uh, you can build your side around. And if there's anyone who's going to appreciate a player like that, then it's Arteta. Mm. A couple of quick final things. One is, um, you know, Arteta, as you say, played a, a deep lying midfield role uh, for Arsenal, but at Everton, you know, he was a, a much more advanced uh, player or played further up the pitch and was more creative. As he's trying to... Um, mold an Arsenal team into something more along the lines of the Arsenal that people uh, expect to see a team that can attack well, plays good possession football, fast attacking skillful, all those kind of things how much do you think that experience of um, his playing days which are not too far in the past will enable him to to put in place those sort of philosophies and, and uh, you know instruct the players as to exactly what it is he wants from them yeah, I think it's a big bonus. I think the fact that, um, I mean, it's not often really you get a manager at a top level club who has played so recently, like you say. And it's, yeah, it's a great bonus. I think it's a little bit like the fact that Arteta knows Arsenal. You know, I've been quite sick of hearing so much about certain managers who know certain clubs and why that's going to be <laughs> invaluable. Um you know, it's not you shouldn't appoint your manager for that reason. But if they are a very promising candidate overall, as Arteta was, then of course it's great that Arteta has knowledge of the club and of the youth system. And you know, I think with a couple of players, he said he, he remembers training them a little bit from when they're in, in the uh, under 16s or whatever. So, yeah, I, I think Arteta really has a really great um, background in various ways to be the Arsenal manager. He knows the club. He knows the Premier League as a player. He's been assistant manager to probably the most innovative manager we've seen in Europe in the last 10 years or so. So, yeah, I think there's so much to be positive about. I think the one, you know, I, I realise it can sound overly positive after four games to, to speak about him like this, but the one thing personally I was a little bit afraid of was, one, he was coming to a side that really was a shambles a month ago, and two, there was such a uh, a packed fixture schedule with a couple of really difficult games as well against Chelsea and Manchester United that I wonder whether he was going to be able to put his stamp on the side. But, you know, so far, without having uh, time on the training ground, without having the opportunity to bring in his own players so far, I don't know whether that will happen. I just think it's, uh, yeah, so many reasons to be positive for Arsenal, both on the pitch. And I think as a whole, you know, the Emery days, I think, will be remembered not necessarily for failures on the pitch, but just the kind of general malaise in, in the stands, the Xhaka incident against Crystal Palace, where I don't think really anyone came off well from that, whether it was Xhaka or the fans or Emery. There was a kind of almost unravelling of the club, I think. And, you know, already things just seem a lot, a lot more united off the pitch as well. Mm. Uh, final question, and I'm asking you to look into your uh, tactical crystal ball here uh, a little bit and I know it's just four games and he's got to work with what he's got to work with between now and the end of the season maybe there'll be an addition in January uh, or two who knows I, I don't know that you know there's going to be significant business in January because of you know the nature of the market and, and everything else but you know going forward is there anything in particular that you sort of expect or, or maybe hope for Mikel Arteta to do from a tactical perspective? You know, are there new trends? Are there things developing in the game that as a young forward thinking coach, he might put in place? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think maybe the most interesting thing Guardiola has done at City has been the use 
And to be honest, he did it more at Bayern Munich than he did at City. But the use of the fullbacks coming inside into central midfield to really prevent counterattacks to the middle, as I said about Maitland-Niles, I think that's maybe the interesting, most interesting trend of the last few years. But I wonder whether that really will play a part at Arsenal um, because obviously Tierney and Bellerin are, are going to be the first choices when they're fit and are both very attack-minded. But I do wonder about Bellerin because when we've seen him back after the injury, he hasn't quite looked at himself in terms of his you know, dynamic forward running, which I think is the main thing we appreciate about his game. But I've always liked Bellerin in possession. You know, I think he's a really intelligent player. He's good on the ball. And I think when he gets into the final third, he doesn't just whip crosses in, you know, into an area. He tries to pick out really kind of incisive balls. So what I'd be interested to see is, you know, whether when he comes back, whether he plays that role that Maitland-Niles has, uh, has been playing, kind of coming inside into the, the centre of the pitch, because... I do think he's got the intelligence and the technical qualities to play there. Um, and I think it'd be really interesting to see a different side to his game, you know, not just overlapping constantly because, you know, with Nelson and and Pepe, we've got two players there who, who do stretch the play, albeit in different ways. Pepe comes inside more because he's left-footed. But to see the development of Bellerin, I think, could be really interesting because, um, yeah, I really like him as a player and I think he's a... Clearly a very kind of open-minded, intelligent, studious guy who mm. might be up for kind of changing his role. So, yeah, when Bellerin is a, a big part of the side, I'd be interested to see what Arteta does with him. All right. Well, something to uh, look forward to. And before we let you go, just uh, to let people know that you do have uh, your own podcast now. Apparently everyone's got one, but you have one uh, <laughs> uh, called Zonal Marking. You don't have to be a subscriber to The Athletic to get it, though. Maybe just give people like two seconds about what it's about. Obviously tactics, but, you know, on, on a theme I guess yeah it's just uh, one every week we focus on a particular topic every week so this one's uh, won't get many listeners from this podcast because <laughs> it's about Harry Kane's development but uh, we'll certainly be looking at Arteta um, in uh, upcoming weeks and we also did a I think a really good one uh, when Jungberg first got appointed as caretaker yeah. manager about his background and 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 basically how he came to be uh, well came to be in charge of Arsenal for a few weeks you know having uh, not really been the kind of player you would suspect would be a manager so that was a good one but yeah there's, there's different subjects a week some about individuals and some about kind of wider themes in football so yeah it's like you say it's free to listen to so check it out if you uh, get the chance yeah in all the usual podcast places we'll uh, leave it there Michael thank you very much indeed always a pleasure thank you Andrew thank you very much indeed to Michael you can find him on Twitter at zonal underscore marking you can read his stuff in The Athletic but you don't have to be a subscriber to The Athletic uh, to listen to the podcast and you can subscribe to that in all the usual podcast places surprisingly enough it's also called zonal marking here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs coming off their parents plan or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now, over the years, Arsenal have brought in countless young players from Europe. Some have been hits, some have been misses. One of those great hits, of course, was Cesc Fabregas, another uh, that's in our squad and uh, not quite in the team at the moment because of injuries, Hector Bellerin. Young players who arrived at Arsenal into our academy, snapped up from clubs across Europe. Maybe it's a little bit 
dodgy, but that's the way the rules work, and it's free. Uh, it's free for any football club to take advantage of those. Um, I saw a tweet um, today from Christopher Flanagan, who said, uh, "It's a shame to think that after this transfer window, Arsenal will never again be able to bring in a player like Fabregas or Bellerin at academy level." Christopher is with me now. He is the managing editor of the International Sports Law Journal. Christopher, why is this the case? It's the B word, right? Not Bentner. No, it's nothing to do with Nicholas Bentner, to the best of my knowledge. Um, <laughs> obviously, he is very influential. Yep, it's to do with Brexit. That's right. And Brexit is going to affect, well, like with all industries, Brexit will affect the football industry, but it has some kind of quite idiosyncratic and I think interesting impacts on football, particularly in respect of the transfer market, because the transfer market is, in essence, about the movement of people. And given that football is kind of inherently international, it's typically about the movement of people across borders. And obviously, I think everyone knows and realises that Brexit is going to um, influence the ways in which people can do that. Mm. Um, And there's going to be kind of two... I think, main points. So it's going to affect transfers generally because there'll be a loss of the unfettered right of freedom of movement across the EU. But there's also going to be um, a specific impact in respect of the recruitment of high-caliber academy players like um, Bellerin and like Fabregas. Um, And that is because of the particular way in which FIFA's rules work. Um, So you get this kind of interesting intersection between FIFA's rules and EU law. Um, And what FIFA's rules say, basically, is that you cannot transfer players uh, until they are 18 years old. Now, that kind of sounds incompatible with what we know about uh, the recruitment of Fabregas and Bayerin at Arsenal, for example. And that is because there are within FIFA's rules, uh, three exceptions to that outright ban. Now, um, those exceptions are uh, players can move across borders uh, under the age of 18. They can do an international transfer uh, into a neighbouring association where that player lives no more than 50 kilometres from the border. Now, obviously, in the case of the Premier League, in the case of England, Uh, There are no kind of contiguous land borders Mm. with EU countries. Most of that is in the sea. Um, Clubs don't tend to recruit many players from the middle of the ocean, so that's not very helpful. (laughs) So we're talking Um, like um, Spain, Portugal, France, Germany. Yeah, exactly. So if you've got someone who lives on the border in the Pyrenees, they could go to either France or Spain. Mm. Um, Not very helpful for the Premier League. Um, Another one of the exceptions is where a player's parents move, and that has to be for legitimate reasons. Um, I think you do hear reported cases of clubs contriving to give jobs to parents, but um, generally that's something that FIFA would take a very dim view on. Um, And the final exception is in respect of 16- and 17-year-olds who move within the EU or actually the EEA, the European Economic Area. So what that means is Premier League is in the UK. Currently, the UK is in the EU. So the Premier League clubs, including Arsenal, can take players, uh, they can transfer players from uh, other clubs, uh, other countries inside the EU without having to worry about this outright ban. Mm. And obviously, that's been particularly fruitful for Arsenal. You know, talked about Fabregas and Bayerin, there's uh, Joel Lopez, I think, currently in the academy. Yeah. Um, and partly this has been a function of the way that the Spanish system works and the UK system works, because in Spain, young players can't sign contracts until they're 18, whereas uh, in the Premier League, they can do so at 17. So it means that clubs have been able to take advantage of that gap to give uh, contracts to the likes of Cesc Fabregas to attract them over. Um, mm. And what that has meant is obviously that the Premier League has been quite an attractive place to come for um, for younger players. And given that uh, at the end of January, um, the UK will leave the EU, that specific exemption will fall away 
So the outright ban will apply unless one of those other two exceptions can be applied. Mm, which is um, un- out- unlikely. Sorry, ahead, no, I mean, that's sort of unlikely given the given the difficulty or the very specific nature of those two, two other exceptions. Um, yeah, that's right. They, they can't be used generally to recruit players who mm. want to recruit because they are really high-caliber players. Yeah. So w- what about the people who would say this could be beneficial for young English, British talent at a club like Arsenal, um, it would provide more opportunities for them. Because, you know, we see a lot of young players come from abroad, come to clubs, not just Arsenal, but to all the Premier League clubs, and the vast majority of them don't make it. And they go back to Europe and they, you know, ply ply their trade somewhere else in in Europe. And there's an argument, um, I'm not necessarily saying it's one that I agree with, but that uh, you know, for the for the English players or for the English national team, all those kind of things, this could be this could actually be a good thing. Yeah, so that is certainly possible. And if you look at a club like Arsenal, where there is now, uh, and I guess for a while has been, uh, a very productive academy producing English players, that could be something that runs to Arsenal's benefit. Because what this is likely to do is put an additional premium on. English players, Mm. because it's going to be harder to recruit high caliber players from abroad. You know, you've got a smaller pool of players you can get at. So if you can produce really high caliber players, then that is a good way of um, kind of having having an an influence on the market. You could sell those players and make good money for for them um, on the basis that clubs are going to find it harder to get players from elsewhere. And one of the other things uh, I touched on at the start um, was the fact that generally it's going to be harder to um, to recruit players because you, what will be another thing that will be lost when we uh, leave the EU after any transition period, um, and I, don't, I won't bore people with the kind of semantic details of that, but after any um, transition period, the unfettered right of freedom of movement across the EU is going to fall away. So mm. that means for every player that a club wants to recruit internationally, they're going to have to satisfy whatever immigration rules are put in place at the relevant time. Mm. Now, at the moment, I guess people will probably be aware that the rules function primarily based on how many international caps uh, a player has and how good their national side is. So the better the team, the fewer caps you need to have. Mm. There's also a transfer value rule that That's was right. brought there's, in quite there's, recently. There's an, there's an appeal process where where it can be taken into account uh, various other factors, including uh, transfer value, uh, players' experience, uh, you know, so, some other factors. But that's a bit that's a bit less certain. Mm. And I guess the other factor to consider is that's the rules that are in place at the moment. The FA might want to make this more restrictive in the future to encourage more domestic players mm. um so that's that's still quite up in the air we don't really know what that's going to look like in the future but what it is almost certain to mean is that it will be harder to recruit players um if you consider gabriel martinelli for example the reason well one of the reasons arsenal were able to recruit him and bring him into the first team quite easily is because he had dual citizenship brazilian and italian um, or he had an Italian passport, which meant that he was able, because he was able to live and work in the EU based on his Italian passport, he can do, he can uh, he can exercise that right anywhere in the EU, mm. including the UK. So we didn't have to go through a convoluted, convoluted um, application and appeals process in the way that, say, Joel Campbell had to go through. There is another sort of aspect to this as well, and one of the things that we've seen in recent years is. Uh, a growth in young English players going abroad, going yep. to Europe. 
yes. and taking full advantage of the fact that there is this freedom of movement, this ability for them to go and live and work in, in any of the European member states. Jaden Sancho, for example, is uh, you know a great example, uh, moving from Manchester City to Borussia Dortmund and flourishing as a footballer to the point where he is you know one of the most highly coveted young English players around. He may not have got that chance if he'd stayed at Manchester City. Chances are he wouldn't have. We've seen Reese Nelson go to Hoffenheim. We've seen uh, Emil Smith-Rowe go to, to RB Leipzig. Um, these aren't just football experiences. They're life experiences. They're cultural experiences. They're uh, educational in terms of, uh, you know, learning another language, all of those things. So there is a flip side as well, isn't there, for the, you know, the... the the uh, the UK becomes much more of an island, if you like, for the, for the footballers because uh, they have their options restricted as well. That's absolutely right. So UK-based players, when they are 16 and 17, are not going to be able to transfer into other EU countries in the way they can now um, because the FIFA rules will prevent it. And additionally to that, it's going to be much harder for them to for them to have any sort of transfer into another EU country, you know, kind of depending on what the respective country, um, respective countries' immigration system ends up looking like, because they'll have to go through the typical immigration process. It's, it's not a simple case anymore of, you know, you can exercise your right to live and work wherever you want in the EU. What do you think is... Um, I know it's hard to predict the future, and maybe the FA will come up with some rules or maybe there might be some kind of, I've heard it suggested that, that football might be granted some kind of an exemption. I don't know why football as an industry would be any different from any other industry. And if football is given some sort of exemption, why aren't, you know, other other businesses, other industries, which are far more reliant on people from uh, the European Union, be given the same thing? I mean, at the end of the day, football is just a, an entertainment thing. Um, but But for the Premier League, which has marketed itself as the uh, most popular league in the world and it is clearly the most popular league in the world but but a big part of that is because it has been able to attract uh, for the most part most of the best players in the world you know there are exceptions uh, at at other clubs and in other leagues uh, that we can all see and we're all very much aware of. But, you know, the prestige, the power, the money of the Premier League makes it a very, very attractive place for players um, to come. And part of that is because it's really easy to do that. It's easy for clubs to make those deals happen uh, because they don't have to go through all this kind of paperwork and rigmarole. So do you, do you feel like it might potentially have a, a detrimental effect on, I, I hate to say it, but the Premier league as as a product it's quite possible it will and i think what it's quite likely we'll see or quite possible we'll see is a friction between the fa and the premier league where the fa want to focus on the development of english players who can play for the national team and the premier league um, wants to have the best possible players playing in their league so it's the most marketable possible as you know the most marketable league possible across the world um, and I guess there are there are other aspects of this as well. If you look at what's happened to the value of the pound um, over the last couple of years, it has plummeted, which has had an effect on the purchasing power of Premier League clubs. So mm. Simply, one pound does not go as far. Um, so players might choose to go to other leagues where, in relative terms, they will be paid more perhaps than they would have before. Just finally, are you um, – I know people are kind of probably, whichever side of the fence they might be on when it comes to Brexit, probably a bit sick and tired of hearing about it because it's been so um, pervasive. It's just been part of the the news cycle for so long now, and, and it's kind of – um, one of those words that you'd prefer never to hear again. Certainly, you know, <laughs> I, get, I get fed up with it. Um, but are you surprised that more people aren't – talking about the impact that Brexit might have on on football because for for all of us this is kind of um, you know our escape this is something that we uh, well we look forward to now again because we've got Mikel Arteta not that we did before <laughs> you know but 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 well, actually just to make a point on Mikel Arteta he yeah. might not have uh, ever come to either Scotland in the first place yeah. or England afterwards based on the um, as a player yeah. based on the uh, 
if, if he was Brazilian or American based on the amount he had played for his national side, which was zero times. Zero times, yeah. But anyway, um, sorry, I interrupted no, you. No, I just mean that like, it, it, it feels to me like it's a fairly, you know, if, if, you're, if you're talking about it, how it's going to affect shipbuilding and car, the NHS and, you know, yeah. car manufacturing and, you know, groceries and simple things like, uh, you know, essentials like medicine and the stuff that keeps people alive. I get that they're more important, but it feels to me like football in some ways has kind of got its head buried in the sand when it comes to this. I mean, football is an important part of, you know, it might, it might be trivial overall, but football is an important part of people's lives. It's something that people care deeply about. Um, and to, to use a horrible cliche, I am surprised that the impact on football has not been a bigger part of the narrative around Brexit because it's going it's gonna to have a, it's going to have a big impact. It's going to have a big impact and it will mean that decisions are taken uh, decisions about how the Premier League operates, what it looks like, uh, are going to be taken out of the Premier League's hands and outside of clubs' hands. It will be more um, at the mercy of FIFA and generally uh, in respect of the government at the time. Mm. It is, you know, I'm always reminded of the the Arsene Wenger quote, you know, where he talked about, I, I don't look at a player's passport, I look at his quality, um, which is, I think, the right way the right way to look at it. And that's something, uh, unfortunately, that uh, Premier League clubs are not going to be able to do um, when when all this goes down. But look, thank you very much indeed for your insight. And maybe we can uh, catch up again when it all happens and uh, see what the impact has been. For now, though, Christopher Flanagan, thank you very much. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you very much indeed to Christopher. You can follow him if you like. He's at Legal Man Flan, at Legal Man Flan uh, on Twitter. So if you fancy a bit of law talking, sport, finance type stuff, he's your guy. It is a a difficult conversation to have. The uh, Brexit thing is something which exercises people um, quite a lot one way or the other, but the reality is is that it's going to have a big impact on on football. And of course, many other things, and there are more important things, but football is why we're here, so the impact of that on football is something that I think we need to talk about. Uh, and not many people are doing that, which is it seems really, really strange to me, as if stuff is just going to carry on the way it's always carried on, or somehow just be magically okay. Um, there are going to be things that we're going to have to deal with uh, in the months and years to come. And uh, we'll see what that does to football as we know it right now. Let's move on, though, and let's have a look ahead to this weekend's game against Crystal Palace uh, at the weekend. They've had some decent results against us in the not-too-distant past. Uh, So to give us a a bit of a flavour of their season and what's going on at Crystal Palace right now, I'm delighted to welcome Dan from HLTCO, which is Hopkin looking to curl one. Hi, Dan. Oh, yeah, you doing? Not too bad, thanks. I, I have to start with the obvious question. Who is going to take your penalty this weekend now that Milivojevic is suspended? It, it is a very good question and one that I'm not 100% sure I can answer <laughs> with any degree of certainty. Um, it's also, given the fact that we've got a huge injury crisis on our hands, it's a difficult thing to even say who we're going to have out as a starting eleven. But I would imagine, should we manage to get one as we so often have in the past <laughs> against you, I wouldn't back against Jordan Ayew taking it purely because he seems to be leading the line and is probably our most obvious goal threat and without Luca, it's all bets off really yeah uh, Ayew is your top scorer this season uh, with five goals yes. in the Premier League it is it is a bit of a problem is it um, goal scoring <laughs> in general yeah I mean it's obviously something every club would like to have more of and we have in the past obviously spent relatively decent sums of money to try and get strikers in with Benteke and Alexander Serlot etc but yeah we, we do seem to struggle in front of goal I think from a Palace point of view it's difficult to know whether Roy Hodgson's tactics are the main driving force behind our lack of goals or whether it's just a bit of a mental block because we've got you know Zaha on one flank who often beats his man and gets a ball across but then at the same time we often struggle to get men in the positions around the six yard box to tap them home so you know we watch it from the stands week in week out 
and it is a source of frustration, but it's difficult to know what the answer is, really. I mean, is it a creativity thing? Or is there a, a lack of that? I mean, that's another thing that every team would love to have is more creativity. But but in Zaha, for example, you do have a really dangerous player, somebody who can drive uh, at defences into the box, win penalties, as Arsenal fans know so well. But is it about getting support to him? I mean, what is the, what is the, the feeling with Roy Hodgson and the job that he's doing uh, at Palace is how how is he regarded amongst the fan base? I think I speak for most Palace fans when I say that, regardless of the grumbles many have over his um, tactical rigidity and his um, favouritism of certain players, you can't really moan at the league position we find ourselves in, given the transfer budgets he's been given since he arrived. But I think most teams in the league know, and it's probably not. Um, too much of a revelation given the golfing class between Zaha and the rest of the midfield that our main tactic seems to be to sort of get the ball to him on the flank and, and just let him do his thing there mm. is a definite um, source of frustration in the sense that Roy Hodgson seems to be allergic to number 10s um, we brought Max Meyer in from Germany a year or so ago he gets very limited game time in the midfield we brought in Victor Camarasa on loan from uh, Real Betis over the summer he was previously at Cardiff and he's a ball playing midfielder and yet again he hasn't really seen it fit to give him many minutes I believe he's going back to Spain in the next couple of days to try and find another club so he seems to Roy Hodgson in general favour the defensive midfielders over the creative ones which you know from a results perspective mm. he can point towards points on the board and say that's great but when you're trying to get a team that's going to get you off your seat and sort of looking for the next goal to go in in a 4-3 win you're never going to get that with Roy Hodgson so it's just one of those things I think yeah um, being slightly allergic to number 10s is something that we were a little bit used to with Unai Emery um, mm. and, and it strikes me you would probably this weekend be happier facing an Unai Emery Arsenal than a Mikel Arteta Arsenal Without a doubt, he seems to have, from a neutral perspective or someone that's looking on from afar, he seems to have completely re-energised the Arsenal squad. I mean, I appreciate, you know, mm. top-class footballers, they can blow hot and cold, but in the short period of time he's been there, it does look like a, a switch has flicked for you. So, obviously, from a Palace point of view, there is a greater deal of trepidation going into the game than there would have been before he arrived. What is the situation with the injuries? I mean, who is not uh, available for you this weekend that ordinarily would be likely to play? I believe, at last count, we had 11 first-team injuries. Wow. Um, we haven't got a left-back at all, as far as I know, unless Jairo Riederwald, who was filling in there as a central midfielder in the first place, is back because Patrick Van Arnold and Jeffrey Schlupp are out. Um, Mamadou Sacco's injured, Joel Ward's injured, Milivojevic is suspended, uh, Andros Townsend's injured. We've had Czech Koyate filling in its centre-back instead of central midfield because uh, of the lack of bodies. Mm. Max Meyer went down with an injury against Derby at the weekend. It's basically, Roy Hodgson said after the Derby game that in all of his years in management, which everyone knows is about 634, <laughs> that he's never known an injury crisis like it, which puts extra focus on us to try and get some business done in the January window. Yeah. Are you confident that the club are going to do that? Because it's it's a difficult um, thing for, for most clubs. I mean, they all, they all want to, but you're sort of caught between this, um, if not a rock and a hard place, you kind of know that the summer is the best time to do business. Yeah, without a doubt. I think from a Palace fan's point of view, and it's something Roy Hodgson said uh, in the press last week, he's been asking the board for two new strikers and two new fullbacks, one on each side, for over a year now. Um, as far as I know, we're being linked semi-seriously with loan deals for St. Tozen from Everton and Kyle Walker-Peters from Spurs. But I think most fans are just frustrated at the persistent loans that we try to get in without parting with too much cash. I think there's a bit of politics going on behind the scenes with part of our ownership and, and their reluctance to spend a huge deal of money. But, you know, it's as you say, January's not an ideal time to do business at the best of times, but given the lack of bodies we've got at the moment, we haven't really got a choice. Yeah, it feels like with that, that amount of injuries, you're going to have to dip into the market. Um, obviously, it hasn't happened ahead of this game. So what way do you think he is going to to approach this because I think Palace uh, are unbeaten in the last three against Arsenal mm. and very um, memorably you beat us at the Emirates 
last season, a game which really had some um, profound consequences, I think, for for the end of our season and and for uh, the reputation of Unai Emery uh, because it, it it all went wrong towards the end of the season. And that Palace game, <clears throat> if you'll excuse me, that Palace game was was really um, it felt like we that was the the cliff we started to go off. Mm. I, I remember at the time when we managed to get the win, it, the the sort of ripple effect that it had on your fan base and on the club in general was quite major. And the thing with Roy is, like as I say, I can moan about certain aspects of his management. But last season we we went and beat you at your ground. We beat Manchester City. You know we've we've proven that against the big sides with the way he sets us up because we're tactically sound and we know our jobs that we can grind out results. I think. If we had a fully fit squad, I wouldn't be necessarily unconfident of getting a point or three. Mm. But given the the sheer number of injuries we've got, I think the the initial tactic will just be four five one, remain stoic and, and try and get to half time at least with parity, and then potentially go from there because that seems to be, especially this season, a tactic that he is employing regularly. Let's talk. Uh, if we can about Wilf, Wilfred Zaha who was very very strongly linked with Arsenal over the course of the summer he is an Arsenal fan his um, representative who I think is his brother as well is it um, made it pretty clear he wanted to leave Palace he wanted to to join Arsenal uh, and that didn't happen for you know uh, many reasons uh, most uh, obvious is the fact that Arsenal never came near the uh, the valuation that Palace had on a player who just signed or re- relatively recently signed a, a new long term contract. What uh, what is your feeling about the way this season has panned out for him? It, it looks from the outside at least like he is a player who uh, I can't say that you know he's sulking or whatever, but it's not uncommon for a player who really wants to move away and doesn't get that move to find it difficult to reach their best form. Mm, I, I, it's tricky with Wolf because from a pure aspect of the way his game works, it tends to blow hot and cold because if he gets the better of his fullback, then you know he'll run right. And if he doesn't, then people assume he's overrated. In terms of Palace's or Palace fans and their general view of him, I think most people are aware that he's given enough to the football club over the last 10 years and has clearly shown his affinity with us publicly enough to say that if the right move and the right financial deal comes in, we wouldn't stand in his way. The problem I think Wolf's got is that he's made a bit of a rod for his own back in the sense that he is far too valuable to us for us to accept a bit of anything less than 60 to 70 million pounds. Mm. But to clubs such as Arsenal, whether it's Chelsea, Everton, doesn't matter who, the idea of spending that much money on Wilfred Zaha, who's never you know, produced the sort of numbers that you would associate with a transfer fee of that size is, you know, lacking in logic. So he's in a bit of a rock and a hard place himself because he's made himself so indispensable to us as a team, given that everything goes through him. It may take some time to adapt stylistically, you know, in his general approach because he's so used to getting the ball whenever we attack. Um, At the same time, I don't think many Palace fans bear him any ill will and should a deal come about in the January window or the summer that sees us financially reimbursed to a satisfactory level. I don't think anyone would... You know, wish him any ill will at all, but it's a case of actually finding a club that are willing to spend that on him, and that's that's really where we've struggled. It is a weird one, isn't it? Because you know, I know when we were linked with him during the summer, you could look at the Arsenal team and think, yeah, this guy could do a job. This guy could bring something mm-hmm. to the team that we don't have. But when you delve into the numbers, when you look at his age, when you look at you know, is there sort of any resale value, if you like, um, uh, based on what? what Palace were looking for him and you can understand in the market why it was they were looking for that money but the you know in terms of goals and assists you know he's mm. never been quite prolific enough to to convince you that yeah we should go the extra mile for that which is probably why uh, Arsenal spent a relatively similar uh, sum on Nicolas Pepe who's a few years younger and probably just has that potential to be a bit more so it's one of those where I think people Arsenal fans would have probably been happy to have him but more uh, at the price we were offering even if you can understand why Palace turned that down yeah I think given his age I've said on social media over the last few months because I get questions about him from all sorts of football fans daily that he's sort of at a tipping point age-wise, really. Mm. Because 27, if he goes another year or two, then the prospect of any top six club spending big on him becomes far less of a 
you know, an option because of, like you say, resale value potential, etc. You'd find, especially with wingers, that players like Pepe, even if they're not quite the finished article, they have room for growth. And he's sort of reaching that point of his career where, you know, that, that period of reaching another level is going to give way to, you know, being on a downward trend. And yeah. I think it's frustrating for him. But at the same time, we always hark back to the fact that he joined Manchester United and at the point when we signed him back he wasn't on a scrap heap as such but people had already written him off the fact that he's managed to get himself back to a point where clubs like Arsenal are looking to sign him is a testament to he and his potential and ability but at the same time the love and affection he's been shown at Palace so it's a bit of a two-way street in my view yeah, tough one, and it's probably why he was so keen to make the move this summer, you know, when you get mm. to, what is he, 27 now? So 27, he was 27 in November, yeah. yeah. And he's also recently just changed his agent to a guy who uh, is far more Machiavelli in his approach. Right. I mean, he was linking him last week with a move to Bayern Munich. Oh, what uh, was loan, that story? Is, yeah, what, where, How on earth is that supposed to happen? I believe it's his agent trying to ruffle feathers because he's trying to, one, um, unsettle us and to give Wilf sort of ammunition to to demand a move away. But like the same thing happens with the transfer valuation of forty million. There's no way on earth, and it makes no logical sense for Palace to greenlight a loan deal for our best player halfway through the season in no. the middle of an injury crisis. Anyway, yeah. So I, I don't know what they were expecting us to say. And then you, what you always get is people saying, 80 million's mad, are they crazy? How do they expect anyone to pay that? And the answer Palace fans will always give is, don't don't spend it then. We don't want you to pay it. Yeah. You know, it's there for a for a deterrent more than anything else. Yeah. Well, look, we'll we'll see what happens. Um, yeah. I, I still have a little bit of fear about what he might do uh, in the game on Saturday. So, uh, yeah, look, he's done it before uh, and he is a very good player and it's, it's sort of one of those things where... Uh, not not quite a player coming back to haunt you, but a player who you've been linked with and it didn't happen. It would be one of those um, kind of football stories, you know, like a of player course, going back yeah. to his old club. Um, okay, well, look, we leave it there. But just uh, for any Palace fans that might be listening to this, you um, you started as a sort of more traditional written website, but you've moved to uh, podcasts and you're on Patreon and people can uh, find your stuff on there. Just give us a, a quick uh, rundown on what it is that you're doing. So uh, back in July, I sort of uh, started looking into interviewing Palace personalities and with sort of modest aims, really, it's managed to ratchet it up to another level because I've managed to get interviews with the likes of Steve Parrish, who obviously owns a part of the football club. I've managed to interview Wilfred Zaha, Darren Ambrose, Dwight Gale, a number of Palace personalities. And now, as of the start of November 2019, I do a, a daily podcast Monday to Friday, just breaking down the news that's taken place in the last 24 hours up by 6am every morning so hopefully that's going to lead to bigger things in the future alright well listen best of luck with that um, not so much best of luck on Saturday but you know how no. it goes uh, Dan thanks a million for your time really appreciate it no problem that's Dan and he's on Twitter at HLTCO at HLTCO uh, if you want to follow and improve your Crystal Palace knowledge you can do that but he also digs up some real rare football Twitter video gems which are well worth a follow in my opinion so thank you again to him for for his time and uh, we'll see what Arsenal can do against Crystal Palace tomorrow at Selhurst Park uh, the only bit of injury news that we have is that Hector Bellerin is not quite fit enough to play he's recovering from his hamstring injury and uh, he's not going to make this one apart from that the only players we have out injured are the long term ones which of course are Callum Chambers uh, who's missing for the rest of the season with his cruciate and Kieran Tierney uh, whose shoulder injury is going to keep him out until March apart from that it seems to be a relatively uh, fit and healthy squad for Mikel Arteta to choose from, which is in stark contrast to what we've just heard about Crystal Palace, who've got a whole host of players out injured. Will that make it easier for us? I don't quite know. You know, we're we're still very much in the early stages of the Mikel Arteta reign. It has been very positive, no question. And the fact that he was able to elicit a response from the team when it didn't turn up in the first half against Leeds, it augurs well. But it's about getting that from the start in, in every game. I know it's not possible, but, you know, when you're trying to drag yourself out of the hole that we've been in over the last little while, uh, you can't afford to throw away a half of football, regardless of how weak, in inverted commas, the opposition might be because uh, of injury. Palace start the game above us in the table, which isn't to say that we're the underdogs or anything, but 
We are going to have to turn up, do a good job, be professional, put the work in like we did against Chelsea, like we did against Manchester United, like we did in the second half against Leeds. And if we do that, then we give ourselves a chance of winning this game. You can't take anything for granted. But hopefully, if we put in the effort, if we put in the hard yards, we can get the kind of performance and the kind of uh, result that will make us all happy at the weekend. Let's hope they can produce that. James and I will be here on Monday with an Arsecast Extra. Hopefully, it will be a goodly morning. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes, in Spotify, on Acast, in all your favorite podcasting apps. Thank you, as always, for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your continued support uh, for everything that we do. We really, really appreciate it. We'll be here on Monday to hopefully talk about a good Arsenal win. In the meantime, have yourselves a great weekend. Until the next one, cheers. Bye-bye. Good afternoon. A statement for those who wish to watch the FA Cup games this weekend. Many people have said they feel the process is complicated. However, this could not be further from the truth. It's remarkably easy. First, drink four pints of Budweiser. After you finish your fourth pint, you will be given a voucher. With the voucher, you may purchase an Emirates Airline flight to anywhere in the world. Return, of course. On your arrival back in the United Kingdom, you will be given a bet slip. On that bet, you must place a treble each way Trixie Yankee Super Hines Goliath Accumulator. If your bet comes in, you will then be permitted to watch the game in a tiny box in the corner of a website. This is the future, bitches. Get on it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.